For the week of August 15th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, back after a two-week summer hiatus. In New York City is Jigger Shaw, entrepreneur, energy futurist, and author of the upcoming book, Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, how's it going this week? Fantastic. I have to say, August is a really relaxing month. It is, absolutely. And our co-host, Catherine Hamilton, has switched out her vacation time with me As soon as I came back, she headed to the Adirondacks, and uh, this week we have a great co-host, a former colleague uh, of mine and a current friend, Richard Caperton. Richard's the Managing Director of Energy at the Center for American Progress, and he focuses on energy finance, policy, uh, technology adoption, and utilities. So let's welcome him by phone in D.C. as Richard Caperton. Hey there. Thanks. Yeah, good to talk to you. How does it feel to be on your first episode of the Energy Gang, not only as a guest but an actual host? Uh, it actually feels pretty intimidating. You know, uh, <laughs> Jigger and Catherine and you, Stephen, are all uh, fantastic experts. So I'm uh, hoping and trying hard to contribute. Yeah, well, you've got some great stuff, and that's why we brought you on because we're going to talk about a couple different issues that you work on pretty closely. So one is on this concept of the utility death spiral. Uh, Richard is out with a new report on this concept uh, uh, spurred by the evolution of distributed energy and how it may follow the digital divide in telecom. So we'll talk about that report as our top story this week and debate the future of utilities. Then, what is the Tea Party doing with the Sierra Club? Supporting solar, of course. Uh, counterintuitive, but an important development. We will look at some developments on the state level where local groups are fighting back against attacks on renewable energy targets and forging some alliances that may surprise some people. And finally, 10 years after the 2003 blackout that crippled the Northeast, we'll ask whether the grid is any better off than it was a decade ago. All right, so on to our first topic, the utility death spiral. Uh, I feel like when I say that phrase, I need some dark music and reverb. The utility death spiral. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum. The, uh, so the d- improving economics of distributed energy are starting to create real pressure on utilities, right? And particularly vertically integrated ones that are going to be less flexible when it comes to integrating technologies like solar. And we've got this potential vicious cycle as more customers use fewer grid services and and potentially push the cost of maintaining infrastructure onto remaining users. So Richard, you're out with this new report on the implications of this death spiral. And to make it more concrete for people, you compare what's happening in the utility sector to the transition underway in telecom, where mobile technologies and broadband have forced companies to phase out copper landlines, um, which is a kind of a natural step for all of us who are connected, but uh, but one that is hurting a lot of rural and low-income customers. So talk about this piece. Help us understand what this death spiral is, what it means for utilities, and and how it's it follows the so-called digital divide in telecom. Sure. So I, I think you laid it out well that it's a problem where as people use less of the uh, utilities' traditional services, so that's buying kilowatt hours from them, Uh, and getting those kilowatt hours delivered over the grid, then uh, there are fewer kilowatt hour sales, but the cost to the utility uh, stay roughly the same. So the per kilowatt hour rate that other customers are charged will go up. 
as that happens, all of a sudden it makes more sense for those other customers to leave the grid and use their own energy services, uh, rooftop solar, uh, natural gas fuel cells, uh, storage technologies, deep energy efficiency retrofits, any number of things that they can do to rely less on the utility. That cycle is self-reinforcing. Uh, it will continue on and on and on, and eventually you'll get to, I mean, the ultimate conclusion here, which is a long way off, is that you get to something like we have in telecom where a lot of people have left the the copper service entirely, and the people who are still there are getting charged exorbitant rates. And in some places, and this is very rare right now, but will become more common the the telephone utility isn't even keeping up the copper system anymore. So people are being told, look, if you want reliable service, you need to switch to a cell phone or some other type of technology to get your telephone your telecommunication services. So this has pretty dramatic implications for universal electricity access, which we have guaranteed in this country for decades. So what happens as these technologies take hold? I mean, do, do you see this as a real threat? Is this happening now? I mean, do you see impl- actual implementation happening in the, the electric sector today that leads you to believe we're on the verge of this? So I think we're um, we're not seeing it today where electric utilities are tearing down their uh, their poles and their wires because they can't afford to keep them up. We're a long way from there. But we need to start planning now for when that does happen because the ongoing technological improvements, uh, which make these new energy resources cheaper and cheaper, uh, will lead us down the path of the utility death spiral. So I think it's it's less a thing that we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing the early stages of it right now. But I think it's more, my paper is more about planning for the future and encouraging people to look way down the road. Because we didn't do that in telecom, and we ended up where uh, we rely on things like the Universal Service Fund to pay to maintain the system. And the Universal Service Fund is collected via landline bills. So as people, you know, turn off their landlines and people aren't paying into the universal service fund. So the model of how we have guaranteed universal service and telecom is fundamentally broken. And we need to develop different models in electricity. So we've got some models that we talk about in the paper, none of which I think are perfect. But it's things like uh, using LIHEAP money, the low-income home energy assistance program money, for uh, new energy resources instead of just helping people pay their bills today. Yeah, there, there are a bunch you know, of interesting ones. Jigger, let's turn to you. What do you think about this analogy here? Well, I, I think the analogy is great, but you know, honestly, like I was going to dig deeper with Richard on this. Is that you know the thing that I mean, I obviously has been a part of this death spiral and quite proud yep. of the fact it's coming. You might, but, you um, might actually have started it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I am. I, we I, are yeah. talking to the man responsible for the beginnings of the death spiral. <laughs> It takes a village, as Hillary Clinton likes to say. But you know, but but I but I'm wondering what I'm wondering is, as a politician or even as a policy person, you know, how likely is it that you're going to actually educate people on this issue? I just find most politicians really don't care about how the electric utility system works, or for that matter, even how the telecom system works. I mean, are we actually going to get? politicians to really care about this before we hit full crisis mode? And it's tough because they're going to care once you hit full crisis mode, uh, but we need to get them engaged. And I don't really have like the right answers for how to get people engaged because these topics are not, well, first, they're tough to understand. And second, we're 10 years away from this being a really, really big issue. So it's the sort of forward thinking that's really tough for people. 
Yeah, two things stand out for me. What do you think? Well, I'll just jump in here. I mean, two things stand out for me. One is that we're going to see an evolution before we see full crisis mode. So we're going to have some time to think about this. Even though the transition will likely happen faster than a lot of utilities predict, we're going to have some period where we're going to be able to digest this. And then secondly, what happened in telecom was kind of the first time we saw this dramatic change from a centralized structure to uh, a, a distributed structure. And, and now that we're seeing that in utilities, we have some historical experience. Um, I can't say how that will exactly play out on the regulatory and policy level, but I'd like to think that those two elements will give us something to work with and, and come up with some of these solutions that you outline in this paper. I just don't see it happening instantaneously without any time to react or any historical context. Well, let me let me give you some sense of the future on this, because I think it's it's relevant, because I think one of the big challenges here is most people can't imagine the future. In the same way with telecom, people didn't really imagine the iPhone coming. No one really understands, I think, where this goes. So right now we think about net metering, right? And so right now where this is playing out is Alec and you know, the Edison Electric Institute and others are trying to basically create this war on net metering, which started off in Idaho and Arizona. But if you take that out to its logical conclusion, what happens is what happens if your block in D.C. because Pepco puts you in a blackout or brownout situation three to four times a year, decides we're going to gang together and we're going to create our own microgrid and we're going to petition the Public Service Commission to allow us to actually maintain our own reliability on there. And it's no longer about solar, but I want to do fuel cells and I want to do, you know, combined heat and power systems using Mitsubishi's five kilowatt unit, etc. I think the real question becomes how far do we go to allow for college campuses or corporate campuses or individual city blocks, or even new home construction, right? I mean, uh, when you build a new home and you have like an entire neighborhood of new homes, maybe they start off being their own little municipal utility. And my sense is is that people are so fixated on net metering that they don't really see the fact that there are a number of these organized groups who are going to want to exit the grid and are going to want to figure out how to manage their own costs as well as their value streams, um, whether it be renewables or whether it be always on power or higher reliability or whatnot. So I think in the last six months, uh, people in the utility sector have gotten much more up to speed with this threat to their business. And you know, some forward-thinking utilities are trying to get out in front of it, but all of them know that this problem is coming down the road. And it's a problem that Jigger described. I mean, I think that traditional net or traditional rate making processes can probably deal with the net metering problem. It's going to be painful and ugly and a lot of feelings are going to get hurt, but ultimately we'll find ways to address net metering. Um, But when you get to people actually cutting the wire on the grid, that is a totally different problem, and it has much different uh, implications for the future of utilities. You cannot deal with that via re- uh, regulatory proceedings or traditional rate-making proceedings. And it's also got a problem where people, when they cut the wire, they start dealing with businesses that are outside of the regulated environment. So, you know, I like Solar City is a great company, I'm sure, and. Sun Edison is a great company, and they provide a good service, and they operate within the boundaries of the law, but they aren't regulated in the way that your traditional utility is regulated. So there are different consumer protection implications that I think we should pay attention to. Yeah, and so do you think it's possible to go back to past uh, regulatory policies and say – 
if these distributed energy companies come in and provide access to solar or whatever technology to low-income and disadvantaged people that will guarantee a rate of return or will provide some sort of tax credit, will make up for the cost in some way. Do you think that that structure is possible today to allow some of these companies to make the same decisions for universal access of distributed technologies like we did in the past? I mean, I think it's going to be hard. Yeah, I mean, I think to maybe to step in there for a second, I, you know, the thing that's fascinating to me is we just have a hard time with the mental model. So when you look at Verizon, for instance, when it was New York Bell, Verizon was 90% regulated in 1996 before the Telecom Act passed and 10% unregulated. Today, they're 90% unregulated and 10% regulated, right? And so SolarCity and SunEdison don't want to be regulated. They don't want a regulated rate of return. If they help poor people, they'll help poor people because they use the same types of financial models that have worked in the past to help poor people. The same thing true with, you know, with middle class folks, etc. Right now, the beauty of distributed generation is our bogey is fixed. We know what the rate tariff is in PG&E's territory. When you look at the Fit Ram program, for instance, in Southern California Edison's territory, people are bidding in 6.5 cents a kilowatt hour for solar. There's no way they're making money at that. So what you're finding is companies like Sun Edison have abandoned the utility scale model for solar and move back to DG because there they can make outsized profits depending on what the negotiation is between them and the customer. Right, but you're always going to have residential customers, for example, that have low credit scores, they have poor geographic areas for siting systems, and so they're going to be disadvantaged in ways that these companies may not be able to reach out to, and therefore you need a policy uh, fix to be able to close that gap. No, but we did that for mobile phones. There are a lot of people with bad credit that we've figured out how to do pay-as-you-go systems with mobile phones, right? I mean, to suggest that we don't have models for the poor, I think, is not right. And on top of that, there are a lot of poor people who have good credit scores. And so this isn't really about poor people. This is really about people that don't have good credit scores, people have, do have, who, also, who do have good credit scores. And then it's also about people who live in apartments versus people, let's say, who have homes and figuring out solutions for them. But I don't actually think there's a problem with reaching out to poor people. Yeah, I think that's right, that it's, it's easy to think of this as a rich-poor problem, but DG today doesn't look like a rich-poor problem. It looks like there are different divides, and there are geographic issues, there are issues about renters versus owners, and it's just like in telecom, it's not, as you say, Jigger, it's not poor people who can't afford phones, it's people who have uh, unique needs for landline phones, people who uh, rely on the copper system for uh, healthcare services or things like that that are, are fairly unique, and there's not that many of them. But, you know, my, my interest is that in electricity, we serve 100% of Americans, not 99%. And in telecom, we sort of have gotten to a place where we used to serve 100%, and today we serve, I don't know, but let's call it 99% because of those people that aren't getting the services that they really need. Um, so I think we should think more we should be more thoughtful than just it's a rich-poor issue, but we should think that there are real issues with some people getting access to new energy resources. Well, the way to, but the way to solve those problems, in my opinion, is, is planning. You know, the government yeah. in general, in all of this back and forth between Republicans and Democrats and Tea Party and socialists, like, I think that we've lost this the government really does have a responsibility not to tell the marketplace who the winners and losers will be, but to actually plan for the future and say, here's the outcomes we want to achieve, and we will set aside resources 
from the federal government, whether they're loan guarantees or whether they are um, these universal access funds or whatnot, to actually make sure that there's the resources available to reach these outcomes. Yeah, yeah I and mean, I couldn't agree more. And that's yeah. why this, this this policy paper is pretty good because it gets people thinking about these issues. Hope people are listening up. Uh, and as you conclude, Richard, there's there's no perfect policy response that exists here. There's a suite of policies, and we need to start looking at them now. Uh, so let's go on to the second topic. Over the last couple of years, conservative groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council, Americans for Tax Reform, Americans for Prosperity, and the Heartland Institute have waged a war on state-level renewable energy targets, which they say are a violation of the free market. Um, but after a solid 9 to 12 months of true campaigning, these groups are zero for 13 in their attempts to repeal or weaken laws. So what does this say about the strategy of these groups? Uh, and even more importantly, what does it say about the local politically diverse constituencies fighting back? Uh, Richard, as the guest host, let's have you th have the first say on this one. You guys are tracking this over at the Center for American Progress. What does it say to you that uh, since this campaign got underway, there are zero victories? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things here. First is the way you started off talking about the topic is that Alec thinks that the they say that these policies are anti-free market, but you know the last conversation we just had is about massive government involvement in the energy market, and that will continue. It's always been like that. There is not a a, a definite uh, a classic free market in this space. So it's it's interesting that we have these two conversations back to back. Um, I, I mean, I think what's happening here is that there is a big constituency for renewable energy and that it's hard to take it on. I think that's part of it. And the second part is that over the years, uh, the left, and this is bigger than just energy, but over the last few years, the left has had sort of a defeatist attitude about ALEC, that they would announce that they were going to do something, introduce some model legislation, and get it passed in a bunch of, in a bunch of states. We didn't let that happen this time. Uh, we knew that they were going to do this. We prepared for this fight two years in advance, knowing that it was coming, and took it seriously. And it shows that if you do take these fights seriously, you can beat Alec. It's not a foregone conclusion that their bills are going to pass everywhere. And that, I think that's a useful lesson to learn, that we can win these fights and that we are, uh, we are a powerful voice. Yeah. Uh, I want to just quickly remind our listeners who ALEC is or what ALEC is. The American Legislative Exchange Council is this group of business interests that comes together at uh, various meetings and writes model legislation and then sends those pieces of legislation out to state legislatures around the country and works with legislators to get that legislation passed that are friendly to those business interests. Much of it is uh, innocuous, but there are a lot of high-profile pieces of legislation, uh, most notably the stand-your-ground laws and, and right-to-work laws. And, of course, ALEC uh, has done a lot on, on repealing uh, climate change targets, and some of the groups involved with ALEC or involved in this campaign ha have done a lot to try to get lawmakers uh, to sign a pledge not to pass any sort of uh, carbon tax or carbon pricing law. So this group has been focused on by renewable energy advocates because of this campaign that they've waged. 
And what's interesting is that there have been conservative groups on the local level that see the benefits of, of renewables, um, either big corporate interests uh, like agricultural operations that may be using manure for methane and, and getting credits through the renewable energy program, or even like we saw in Georgia, uh, tea partiers who now say we want choice, we want distributed technologies uh, to get a chance to compete in the market. And so these diverse constituencies are coming together to hit back against many of these large interests that are crafting these laws. Jigger, let's hear what you have to say about this. A couple of years ago, I remember we were having a conversation and you said, you know who loves solar? It's not just the, you know, the tree huggers out in Berkeley. It's the people down south who uh, are skeptical of government and who want to be off the grid. And now what we're seeing is that that's starting to bubble up and become somewhat of a political movement. Still very small, but definitely interesting and notable. Yeah, you know, I think Richard made a great point, which is this this topic dovetails nicely from our last topic, which is that, you know, this notion of getting college campuses or your home or your block choice so that you can actually figure out a way to manage your electricity bills, but also manage the features that you want to have is a very libertarian um, sort of point of view. It's a, it's a very sort of, you know, please don't have the big utility or big government tell me how to live my life. And so a lot of these guys have come together, and that's actually what's destroying the utility with the utility death spiral. But it's also what's actually destroyed ALEC here, because what we're doing in the renewable energy system is providing people choice. I mean, if you hate your utility company right now, and you want another option, what else are you going to do? You're certainly not going to put a diesel generator in your backyard and, and actually live with all of that noise pollution as well as real pollution 365 days a year. In fact, I don't think the EPA would leave it. And the massive expense. I mean, it's not cheap to run your diesel generator. Absolutely. And so I just think that this really is a about freedom and it's about choice. And my sense is, is that if we actually start learning how to message this around freedom and around choice, I think we're going to win not only here in this um, in this electricity argument, but I think we're also going to win against big oil where we don't have choice around fuel choice, for instance, at the gas pump. One thing I find somewhat disingenuous here is that the folks in the Tea Party who are supporting this solar program at, uh, at Georgia Power haven't recognized that in order to create this choice, you need a regulatory tool to come in and basically force Georgia Power to, to procure this large amount of solar. And so what they're doing is theoretically violating the free market by creating yet another set of regulations, telling a company what to do, in a highly regulated market. Uh, and I think that many advocates of renewables, uh, they may not always be right, but at least m most of them recognize and admit that this is a highly regula regulated environment and many of the solutions that they have are regulation oriented. But what happens is that people who are promoting this, this argument of choice fail to recognize that in this highly, highly regulated market, it's more intervention often that creates that level of choice. Yeah, but I don't think we're saying different things, though, Stephen. I mean, like, what I'm saying is that it's the government's responsibility to allow us to have access to innovation. And that's what choice really means. For many years, because of net metering issues, because of interconnection issues, because of paperwork issues, Georgia Power was not actually nice about it. Even now, it's not clear that Georgia Power is enthusiastically supporting third-party ownership. 
in Georgia, right? And so when they throw up these random roadblocks to successful deployment of innovation, they really are restricting choice. So I don't think it's disingenuous to say that, oh, we're in a regulated environment and therefore like you should be fighting all regulation uniformly. I just think that, you know, for a lot of these Tea Partiers, they're saying, look, if in- if innovative technology exists for me to exercise free choice, I should have the right to do that. Yeah, but I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I'm just saying when we look at this Georgia Power example specifically, and then these broader fights on the state level, they they are being very disingenuous when it comes to the role of regulation. And when they talk about a free market and talk about choice, they're ignoring the highly regulated environment that created the interests that say, Alec is trying to protect. So that's all I'm saying. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with your point. I think we're essentially saying the same thing. But I do think that this is very important to remember as we look at the arguments that many of these business interests are making and implementing these laws on a state level. And Stephen, I think that'll get more uh, sophisticated as the Tea Party continues to engage in these things. I mean, the Georgia Tea Party is a relative newcomer to solar DG and electric utility issues in general. And I'm, I don't think we should be surprised that they have um, a somewhat uh, mistaken take on this, potentially. Um, I think they'll sort that out at some point and we'll develop much more sophisticated takes on utility regulation. I also think that these populations have a different standard when it comes to the federal government, the state government, the local government. I think they fully understand that the local government, the state government have a responsibility to provide clean drinking water through solid waste management, other types of things, as well as garbage pickup and, and, you know, and electricity as well as um, natural gas utilities. I think what they, what they worry about is these one size fits all prescriptions that come out of EPA or, you know, DOE or other federal mandates. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The game tends to change when it comes to a local level. What's really interesting about this is that the conversation has changed. I mean, Richard, when you and I were working together a year ago, a year and a half ago, you know, we were working behind the scenes taking a look at what Alec and other organizations were doing and and cataloging many of the fights that they said that they were going to start waging and, you know, we were prepared to to talk about this as the the big story of the year and it, you know, I think it's interesting that we've seen zero wins in in 13 battles so far. And, um, you know, we've seen 100 pieces of legislation outside of these groups proposed in 2013 already uh, with 22 states uh, featuring bills designed to weaken or repeal standards. And we haven't seen any of them succeed. And in fact, yeah, it uh, on... feels good to win some fights. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it's and. Uh, and, you know, in Minnesota, Colorado, New York, Georgia, they've all passed programs to enhance the laws or programs connected to them. And even on the efficiency side, uh, you know, as lawmakers nationally rail against light bulb standards and ceiling fan standards and appliance standards, you know, we've got more momentum in Alabama and Louisiana in Miss in Missouri and South Dakota. They've all passed new utility performance incentives for efficiency in the last year. So I think a lot has changed. Um, Alec has made it very clear. They made it very clear in their meeting this last month that they were going to start crafting a couple new laws that they're going to send to lawmakers around the country. But so far, we've got a lot of wins here. Well, I mean, the one the one other thing I would just say is that is I do think that sometimes and many times, actually, that passion beats logic. 
And I think for a long time we've been using logical arguments. And at this, for this particular issue, we have a tremendous amount of passion. And I think we met Alec passion with passion. And I think we defeated them with passion. So on to the third topic. Uh, Ten years ago yesterday, the Northeast experienced a massive blackout during a summer heat wave, leaving 50 million people without power and costing tens of billions of dollars in economic losses. The blackout was caused by this cascading series of problems and you know, freak events that resulted in a massive failure. And so a decade on, have we learned any lessons? Um, Richard, I'm going to go three for three here and start with you as a guy who's worked in utilities. Uh, what's your sense of how things have changed a decade on when it comes to grid management and stability as it relates to this particular blackout? Yeah, so uh, I should be clear that grid operations are all magic to me, and I know basically nothing about the science and engineering behind all of it. But I mean, I think that people take these things seriously. Uh, we've seen uh, some low-tech uh, changes. Uh, utilities pay a lot more attention to tree trimming than they used to. And I get the feeling, anecdotally, that there's a lot of interest in uh, setting up duplicative systems and, and more resilient systems and just being smarter about how the grid is managed. And I think the challenge here is that 10 years ago, we saw a big outage caused by cascading series of events on the transmission system. And then last year, we saw huge outages from Superstorm Sandy that had very, very different causes. And the White House has a report out this week that talks about the, the cost of extreme weather-related outages, which are different from what happened 10 years ago. So I think that even if we have dealt with that problem from 10 years ago, we still need to learn to deal with the new problem, and we need to stay in front of this. I'm struck by one theme that I think is relevant to both this new White House report and the cascading outages that we've seen that we saw in 2003 and then the one in San Diego we saw in 2011. And that is there's so much more than a technological fix here. I mean, when it came to this 2003 uh, outage, you know, we have we did it, we had poor reliability diligence from First Energy when it acquired this local Ohio utility, so it didn't know how quickly an outage would spread. We had poor redundancy and alarm failures, and we had these bad tree trimming practices. And now we have you know new standards and reliability for reliability assessments. We have um, new federal vegetation management requirements, and on the extreme weather side. Many organizations have come out and, and asked, how can we prevent massive outages like Superstorm Sandy, particularly as extreme weather gets more intense? And many of them are not technological focused. Many of them are just coming up with better reliability plans, uh, better communication with customers before storms hit. And uh, so I think talking about this in a smart grid context is really important, but there's so many other, dare I say, more boring elements to this that are extremely important for reliability. And also, they can oftentimes be cheaper. Uh, you know, one way that we could prevent outages related to extreme weather is to underground all the power lines, but that is massively expensive, and it turns out there are much more cost-effective ways of dealing with the same problem. I mean, not, not to pour, like, you know, gasoline into the fire, but I just, you know, <laughs> and the bottom line is, is that the 2003 blackout, we are modestly more prepared for this, you know, today than we were in 2003. And that's just outrageous, right? I mean, to suggest for a moment that we didn't have the ability 
to assess what was actually wrong in 03, and then to spend the $4.5 billion that we put into smart grid properly. I mean, if you look at what, what the Obama administration did in Chattanooga, where instead of actually doing smart grid at individual homes, they actually put smart sensors at all of the substations, which the UK has actually had since 03. And when the derecho went through Chattanooga, they were only out for hours, not six days like they were in Washington, D.C. We could have rolled that technology out nationwide to be able to isolate these types of these types of grid problems, whether related or not, to give people far less outage time. But instead, we wasted billions of dollars on technology at people's homes that they don't even want to use. And that they stop the linemen with a gun when they come into their neighborhood uh, out in the PG&E territory. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I just, I just think that we've fallen at the switch. This goes back to what we talked about earlier in the podcast, where I simply do not think the government is taking its role on planning seriously enough. They have these individual isolated reports that get put out by these ridiculously smart people at government labs. But then when it comes to the local public service commission, we're just herky jerky putting all sorts of weird stuff out there. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Like we know that our substations in this country are generally analog-based, literally analog-based, not digital, like you, the UKs have been since 03. We know that changing them to digital means that we have the ability to react to weather-related events in microseconds, not multiple seconds. But we still haven't upgraded the grid. So what do you guys think about this switch, this apparent switch within the industry to start focusing on grid modernity and grid resiliency rather than the smart grid, which tended to be more consumer-focused. Uh, this White House report was a little bit of a shift. They cataloged the increase in extreme weather and how that was increasing outages and making outages more expensive. And uh, although it didn't really provide anything concrete in terms of what the White House or other people in government might do to sort of switch strategy and, and do what you two are talking about, it does seem to be a little bit more of a rhetorical shift that may have policy implications. Well, this goes back to our first topic around the utility death spiral. I think that whether you're talking about reaching very large penetrations of renewable energy or whether you're talking about figuring out how to get incremental revenue into the utilities – I think everyone agrees we have to modernize our grid. Our grid, according to the Brattle Group, 70% of our grid and all the components of our grid is over 25 years old. That means, and a lot of it's actually over 40 years old. And this was before most neighborhoods put in air conditioning at every home, et cetera. So there's a lot of upgrades to be made. And so I think the utilities feel safe in saying, you know, we are going to have to spend $80 billion a year for the next next two decades to really you know, try to keep up with all of the investments necessary to maintain um, these renewable electricity standard, the progress we're making there, as well as just keeping the lights on. And I think there are legitimate questions about whether or not that is the most uh, cost-effective way to achieve reliability in neighborhoods. Um, Jigger, I know I've heard you talk about the fact that we don't need to build a grid in developing countries. Uh, they don't have a grid, and the cheapest way to provide power there is through distributed solutions in many cases. Uh, in the United States, we have a grid, and so it's always been assumed that because we have one, we should go ahead and keep it up. But I could imagine cases where it's cheaper just to give people solar panels on the rooftop and batteries in their basement and a natural gas fuel cell running off their uh, natural gas that comes into their house and just quit maintaining the power system. And we've come well, full circle. 
That is no. the true utility death spiral right there. That's exactly right. Actually, I mean, just to give you one example, I talked to the folks at the Long Island Power Authority. They think that if they put in some, somewhere on the order of $100 million worth of incentives in place for renewable energy, particularly solar, in the right places in Long Island, they can actually save $400 million of transmission distribution upgrades. That's, and that's a utility with the right incentives being publicly owned. Yeah, no, I agree. It's um, I you know the the thing about this whole this whole area is it's so fascinating because actually we're not all working off the same set of facts, and so you know there actually is some real work to be done around making sure that all the facts that we're working off are exactly the same, and so it's exciting because like you know at least for me you know I learned something new about where everything's going just through you know all the technology that's coming out every single month and what Green Tech Media covers and Center for American Progress covers. So it's an exciting time for people who believe in innovation. Indeed. The energy gang yep. working off its own set of facts right here. <laughs> 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 All right, let's, let's go on to our final segment, uh, wrapping up and hear something new or novel from our hosts. Jigger, tell me something I don't know. Well, you know, I am uh, going to Aspen for the Aspen, well, I think it's renamed now, the American Renewable Energy Day. And, um, and I am, like, I just finished talking with Carl Pope, as well as um, TJ Diora, who's um, at IHS Sarah. And there's actually a lot of consensus between the three of us that for a very little amount of investment, that you could actually drop, the G20 could drop oil prices from $100 a barrel to $70 a barrel, saving you know people around the world something on the order of around, you know, five to eight hundred billion dollars a year and so i'm fascinated by the fact that someone from ihs sarah is actually saying that as well which is dan jurgen's group um because that actually gives me hope that you know it's not just solutions for coal that we have these days but it's actually solutions for oil all right how about you richard tell me something i don't know so we've talked all day here about uh, challenges to the utilities and massive changes in the utility business model, but there are people working within the existing utility business model to do things right, and I'm particularly interested in the growth of new retail choice models, uh, people providing power in deregulated states that's clean power. We've all known about ethical electric and people like that. Uh, Stephen, you have covered the big business demand for uh, renewable energy like Google and their data centers. And then I was just talking with somebody uh, this week who's a DG service provider that's interested in getting into the retail choice market as a way to provide power to people that can't put uh, DG in their house or that are geographically constrained. So there are opportunities out there today that don't require changes that people are taking advantage of. And I think that's interesting given the the massive amount of interest in new business models in this sector. Yeah, a great point and certainly one of the many solutions to bridging this divide that we're talking about after the utility death spiral unfolds. So giving people access to renewables that may not otherwise have that access. Okay, well, mine is just a quick progress report from my vacation. Uh, as I mentioned last episode, I went to Alaska for a couple-week vacation, and 
I got to travel around and visit some of the major glaciers in Alaska. Um, I went to the Gruink Glacier and to the Exit Glacier and uh, got to climb inside the glacier and, and ice climb out of it. They lead guides there. And it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life to actually go inside and hear the heartbeat of a glacier and see it melting rapidly and talking to the guides who understand the history of the glaciers and and to see them mark how far the glaciers have receded in the last couple of decades. Um, There's this great film out that came out late last year called Chasing Ice that everyone should go see and... That was a real eye-opener for me. And then to go to these glaciers and see firsthand how quickly they're receding uh, was just really a remarkable experience. All right, so that's going to mark the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. For links to the stories we discussed today, go to greentechmedia.com and look for them on the podcast page. And do not forget to subscribe to us. There are any number of ways you can do that. You can download the SoundCloud app on your smartphone and listen to our podcast and follow us from there. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or your favorite podcast player by uh, checking out our RSS feed, and that's linked on the podcast page at greentechmedia.com. And of course, if you have any story ideas, please send them over to me. My email address is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We love hearing from listeners. We want story ideas from you. We want to know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and uh, so we can help this make, make this a more engaging show for you. All right, Jigger, always a good time. Great discussion today. Thanks, as always. Fantastic to have you back. And Richard, thanks a lot for coming on today and filling in. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. It was a a ton of fun. Well, I enjoyed it as well. Uh, Catherine Hamilton will be back next week. And uh, with Jigger Shaw and Richard Caperton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 